Two weeks ago, we started a new series that's based on the book of 2 Corinthians, and we called this series um, uh, Carriers, and, and I'm in, I got to tell you, I am really enjoying diving into the book of 2 Corinthians, particularly because of the cultural reality that we are in right now. Like, first off, we are right after Easter, and so 2 Corinthians is really all about the implications of the resurrection. Okay, great. Jesus rose from the dead. What does that mean? And, and Paul addresses it in so many different ways. He, he kind of sees it as like the thing in the center of a diamond, and it has all these different cuts, and Paul is just kind of turning the diamond to help us see. You could talk about it like this, and you could talk about the resurrection like this, and you could talk about it like this, and he's turning the diamond for us to see so many different implications. But I also really am enjoying this because... The whole reason we called this series Carriers is because of the cultural reality that right now there's a lot of conversation and a lot of concern about who is carrying this virus that, that has the potential to cause death to a lot of people. And yet, what, we, what Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians is that we are carriers of something that is far greater than that, far, has far more potential. He actually tells us that we always carry around in our body, the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. See, what Paul is saying that as followers of Christ, we are carriers of a death that leads to life. And that death that leads to life is the death of Jesus Christ and, of course, his resurrection that follows suit. And that resurrection brings resurrection to us in so many different ways. And so what Paul is continually reminding us is that we carry, if we carry the death of Jesus, we also carry the life. It means that God can take the most difficult things in our life, the most painful of circumstances, and completely transform them. So two weeks ago, we talked about how in chapter 4, he really highlights this idea that God can transform death and loss and suffering into life. And then last week, he, um, and looked at, we looked at chapter 5 where he talks about how God can take the broken things like you and me and the relationships that we even exist in and in the world. And, and God can fix the broken things. He can unbreak them. And today we're actually going to be looking at chapter 8 um, where uh, Paul talks about how God can take our poverty and he can turn it into extravagant generosity. Now, once again, 2 Corinthians actually proves to be this extremely timely book for us to be looking at. And, and the reason I say this is because seven weeks ago when this whole thing started, um, me and uh, the staff, so Chris and Anna, we actually made a list and we tried to call everyone in the church. And if we didn't actually get in touch with you, it's probably because we didn't have an accurate number because we really did try to call everybody in the church. And there were a couple different things that we wanted to ask, some things we wanted to check in on. But one of the things was we were asking people like, hey, are, are you okay? Do you need anything? Do you have any needs? And the, the fascinating thing to me was that by and large, most people were fine. Most people had what they needed, but they immediately turned the question around. And they said, okay, but does anybody else need anything? <laughs> I'm fine, but does anybody else need anything? Is there any way that I can help? Please give me a call. Please let me know if there's anything that I can do. 
Now, I love this about our church because you guys are so eager to help one another, both those in the congregation and those outside of the congregation. In fact, last week when we took our survey um, where we had everybody sort of text in a couple answers, uh, answers to a couple questions about the church, one of the questions was, what are you most proud of? Like, Like, as Clarksburg Church, what is the thing you're most proud of, Clarksburg Church? Like, what is it? And it was funny because as I was reviewing all the answers that, that people gave, by and large, like every single one, but maybe two, every single one of them had to do with the fact that you were proud of the way that our church cares for people. You were proud of the way that our church addresses the needs of our congregation and the community. So those inside the church and those outside the church. That this was like the thing that, that we were really, really proud of. That, that we take care of people. And I thought that was beautiful because that's what I wanted our church to be. And it's this reflection that that is who our church is becoming. That's who our church is becoming. We want to make sure that everyone is okay. We want to make sure that everyone is cared for and that our neighbors are blessed and the people in the congregation are blessed. There's this real recognition that our church understands that even in the middle of this storm, we are all in it. But we also understand that we're not all in the same boat, that there are some people that are in like the yacht with the underground cabin with four weeks stocked worth of food and money and supplies. And then there are other people, both in our congregation and in the community, that are like sailing through this storm on a piece of driftwood with one extra can of tuna in their pocket and trying to make it. And so I love that our church has this recognition. We want to make sure that everyone makes it. We want to make sure that everyone is cared for. And so it isn't a surprise that that is how our congregation sort of responded. Now, the interesting thing is that this actually is the same way that the Corinthians really responded um, to situations. They sort of had the same attitude and eagerness as we do when it comes to helping others. In fact, um, what we learned through the book of Corinthians, both the first and second one, is what we learn is that there was a famine in Jerusalem, another city where there was a church who was struggling immensely. They were struggling to take care of themselves. They were struggling to take care of the city. And so Paul took it upon himself and he said, hey, guys, all the churches in the area, in the Mediterranean, we have got to help out this church in Jerusalem. So can please everybody pull together your resources. I'm going to send a messenger. He's going to collect the gift and we're going to bring it to Jerusalem so that they can be taken care of. Now, what Paul tells us in the book of second Corinthians is that the Corinthians were the most eager. They were the first ones to say, yes, I want to help. We'll do everything we can. We will pull our resources together. We're going to take care of Jerusalem. This is what we have to do. And so in that way, they were very much like our church, like Clarksburg church. However, in Corinth, we discover that their eagerness didn't actually match their follow-through. It wasn't because they didn't have the means. Corinth was actually located in southern Greece. And what we find out about Corinth is that as both a city and a community following Christ, they were extremely talented. They were well-educated. They had lots of opportunities for different things. And they had great wealth. And so... It was really that when it came time to give, 
They really just hadn't prioritized saving anything up. And they had very little to offer. So the eagerness that they had at the beginning really didn't match what they actually gave. And so Paul takes a portion of 2 Corinthians to sort of just say, hey, I'm going to just help you understand why it is so important to grow in the grace of giving and be generous. And the way that he does this is actually beautiful because he doesn't guilt them. He doesn't shame them into giving. Instead, what he does is he starts to tell a different story. He actually tells them the story of the Macedonians. The Macedonians were a Jesus-following community that was located in Macedonia, which was in northern Greece. Now, in northern Greece, they didn't have what the Corinthians had. So they didn't have a lot of talent. There wasn't a lot of means. There wasn't a lot of opportunity. In fact, it was a very impoverished community and a very impoverished church. So, So they really didn't have enough, but they didn't really have a lot. But what Paul tells the Corinthians is this. He says, and now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. In the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. Like, listen to that again. Their overwhelming joy and their extreme poverty welled up into a rich generosity. For I tested that they gave as much as they were able, and even beyond their ability, entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the Lord's people, and they exceeded our expectations. Now, when Paul says that thing, he says, um, listen, they gave as much as they were able. They even gave beyond their ability. I just want to clarify that because what Paul doesn't mean is that they gave so much that they then weren't eating (laughs) or that they gave so much that they then needed a help offering because they were in dire straits. That's not what Paul is saying. What Paul is actually means is that The Macedonians changed the way they were living in order to be generous. The Macedonians changed their entire lifestyle in order to find ways to give even more, even more beyond their ability, more than they were first able. And in whatever way they were living before, however meager that might have been, they were tightening their belts even more so that they could grow in their generosity. Now, many of us right now, we are also changing our lifestyles as a result of this pandemic, right? Um, maybe you used to go get coffee at a coffee shop um, once or twice a week, and now you just don't because your lifestyle has changed as a result of this pandemic. Or maybe for some of you, you used to eat out a lot, or maybe there was a house project, a remodeling project that you were going to be doing, but because of this pandemic, you kind of have to say, like, hey, we're just going to put that on pause, we're going to put that on the back burner, we're going to postpone it for a little while just to see how all of these things sort of play out. Perhaps you used to leave the house a lot and now you're not leaving the house, right? There's all sorts of ways that your lifestyle has changed as a result of this pandemic. Now for them, their lifestyle wasn't changing because of pandemic. It, pandemic, it was changing because they wanted to be more generous. They wanted to live more generously. And honestly, as a church, we're doing that too. 
there are certain things that, that our staff and our team are sort of making decisions about of, to postpone or to put on the back burner um, in order to make sure that we can be even more generous to those who are in need around us. We're trying to assess how is it that we can increase our generosity to the people who are getting hit the hardest. And, and how can we increase our generosity to our partners that are sort of on the front line and in the trenches sort of meeting the needs of people. And we're looking at all of those different things and trying to make some really strategic decisions in order to help the people that are around us. And it's not just our churches and organization who's, that's doing that. It's actually you guys as individuals too. It's you as individuals because, see, I know that um, because uh, during the months of March and April, our tithes and offerings, our giving was higher <laughs> than it was in the months of January and February. In the middle of a pandemic, our offering, our giving, the generosity of our people is higher? Like, <laughs> that doesn't make any sense. And yet I know it's because your hearts are saying, hey, we got to give so that we can figure out how to take care of the people around us. And in addition to that, the other thing that's really cool is in the months of March and April, we had seven first-time givers, seven people from our congregation and in our community that said, hey, I haven't given before, but now, <laughs> now I got to give. I, I feel compelled to give. Seven people, when everyone else is, might be tightening their belt and holding back and clinging to things, you all as a congregation are saying, what do you need? How can, how can I give? How can I be generous? How can I change my lifestyle in order to give? Now, you're not just doing this when it comes to finances. There are other ways that you're doing this also, and I see it because we had a food drive for Clarksburg Can, which is our local pantry, this past week. Um, Clarksburg Can serves the people in the area and makes sure, makes sure that they have food and groceries to sustain them. Um, and so they had a distribution on Saturday. They're having another one on Tuesday. And I saw people all week dropping off items to support Clarksburg Can and say, hey, how can I take the food? How can I take the resources? How can I purchase under the limited constraints that some grocery stores have and make sure that I can share what it is that I have? And it's not only for Clarksburg Can, we also have our free little pantry, and I have seen multiple people pull up in cars with their trunks filled with groceries, packing that pantry full to make sure that those who have need can get the food that they so desperately need. I see this not only with the, with the food that you are giving, but I also see in the way that you're using your time. Those of you who are contacting each other and connecting with one another and making sure that nobody falls through the cracks, I see it with the way that you are um, being generous with your emotions and carrying one another's burdens taking care of one another and listening to the grief and the losses that others are experiencing. I see that in the way that you're being generous with your prayer life. There are many of you that are signing up, not just for a once a week slot in our prayer chain, but you're signing up for a daily slot or, or several times a week to just make sure that our congregation is completely covered in prayer. Now, one of my favorite um, stories is one that happened this past week. 
There are stories of people I know who are taking care of needs that I'm not even aware of, but this is one that I am aware of. And this is one where there was somebody in our community that contacted the church and said, hey, listen, I received this um, stipend, the stimulus check from the government, and, and we're really okay. Our, our family is really doing fine, and, and we're going to be, but we recognize that somebody else might not be. And so they asked me, do you have a family in your congregation that needs a little something extra, that needs help, that has fallen on particularly hard times? And I was able to say, yeah, I do. And so I was able to connect them together. Now, the thing that I couldn't believe was that he received something. It was just so amazing. He received something. And instead of just assuming that it was meant for him, He had this recognition that he was the steward of this thing. That he got to decide what to do with it, but just because it came to him didn't necessarily mean that it was for him. And so he had this generous decision where he said, hey, I want to pass this on to another family. And in a lot of ways, the family who he passed this on to were sort of rescued in a lot of ways by this gift that was given. And I know that there are people throughout our congregation that are doing that, and I don't know all the stories, but I know that there are those of you who are hiring individuals who are on the needs board and trying to give them work, trying to support their families, who are being generous with each other um, all over the place. And you have done this in so many different ways. And that's the story that Paul is telling the Corinthians. He's saying, listen, the Macedonians were poor, but they adjusted their lifestyle and the way that they chose to live their life so that they might be able to give even more. And they totally exceeded everyone's expectations. Now, Paul doesn't tell the story in order to guilt or shame the Corinthians in order to give more. And we know that because Paul actually explicitly says it. He says this, But since you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete eagerness, and in the love we have kindled in you, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. I am not commanding you. See, there it is. I'm not commanding you. But I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the eagerness of others. See, Paul is saying, look, you are good at so many things. You're skilled and you're talented. You're smart. You can make a lot of money. But I also want you to be good at the grace of giving. I want you also to be good at generosity. But I can't command you to be good at it. I can't even try to force you to be good at it. You've got to just do this out of love, just like the Macedonians did. Now, what's interesting is that Paul is not shy. He is not gun shy when it comes to commanding people to do things. If you read Paul's other letters, Paul all the time says, you've got to do this. Stop doing that. Start doing this. So Paul like commands all the time. In fact, if you remember back, that's what got Paul and the Corinthians in hot water when he wrote this, the first letter, first Corinthians, and he said, you've got to do this and you've got to stop doing that. And he was commanding them all over the place. And it kind of made the Corinthians mad. Like this is why we're in this situation. And so why is it that Paul is fine commanding people to do different things in all sorts of different contexts, but not this one. In this one, he says, listen, I'm not going to command you to give. 
Well, the truth is, is that it's because generosity and greed, the lack of generosity, is really an issue of the heart. See, no one can see what's actually going on. You, you could say that, you really can say that like all other sins are attached to sort of neural lines, like lying and stealing and, and adultery. It's sort of like when you lie, you know you lie. And when you steal, you know that you are stealing. And when you commit adultery, it isn't like you're just like, wait, what just happened here? I don't even know. You know you committed adultery. Now, it might sneak up on you, but there are clearly external behaviors that are attached to those things where you can say, yeah, I did that. I did that. However, the line between generosity and greed, like that one's a little bit harder to define because it's such a heart issue that no one can see. A millionaire could give, like a person who's like a multi-billionaire could give a million dollars to something and they could actually still be a greedy person. And an incredibly impoverished person could give $10 to something and they be incredibly, extravagantly generous. It all depends on sort of what's happening behind the scenes, what's happening in someone's heart. Now, you might think that the line between greedy and generous is the tithe, um, and the tithe is uh, uh, 10% of your income, which in the Old Testament, God sort of lays out early on as sort of this um, way to say, hey, if you want to practice understanding that God is the owner and you are just the steward or the manager of things, he, God says, hey, I want you to regularly give 10% of what you've given so that you can sort of loosen in your grip on things. You can let go of them and recognize that God is the owner and you're just the steward. Now you might think like, oh yeah, that's the line, 10%. If you're doing that, you're generous. If not, you're greedy. The problem is, if that's the line between generosity and greedy, why is it that in Luke 11, Jesus like lambasts the, um, the uh, Pharisees and sort of gets incredibly mad at them. And what he says to them is, he kind of tells the Pharisees in Luke 11, he says, listen, Pharisees, you tithe everything. You don't just tithe your income. You don't just tithe your money. You tithe everything you grow. So if you grow some spices, you're like cutting out 10%. And if you grow some herbs, you're cutting out 10% of that. You tithe everything. So wouldn't that be generous? And Jesus says, no. He gets mad at them and he rebukes them. And what he points out is he's like, great, you tithe stuff, but you're doing it out of obligation and compulsion. You're doing it to meet some sort of quota. And you've totally forgotten love and justice. You've forgotten these matters of the heart you've given out of obligation, not generosity. And Jesus kind of ironically says, that's being greedy. You're giving to become acceptable. You're giving in order to get something in return, acceptance. But whenever our giving is wrapped up in the question, how much do I have to give in order to be okay? It's still coming from a place of greed rather than a place of generosity and love. Forgiving to be done out of generosity always has to be done out of love and out of love for people and love for the mission of God. This is what Paul says in chapter 9. He says, remember this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap 
sparingly. Whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Now, these verses, both of them, the first one and the second one, They've both been taken totally out of context. This idea of God loves a cheerful giver is kind of like shoved in little kids' faces when they're like not sharing with a smile. It's kind of like parents are saying, share it and put a smile on your face, you know? I don't think this was really Paul's point to just like fake happiness about giving. Um, But the other thing is, is that earlier verse has often been taken out of context to propagate sort of a prosperity gospel that says, if you give money to God, you will get money back. More will come to you. If you give it, more is going to come back in and eventually you'll be rich. Like that's what people have used this verse to taught. But In that way, giving sort of becomes an investment strategy. You give and you'll get something back. You aren't really giving because you're being generous. You're giving because it's like some sort of cosmic game of bigger and better. And that is still wrapped up in greed. And it also is a faulty interpretation of the metaphor that that Paul is trying to share. He's using this metaphor about sowing and reaping, that when you sow seed... What you get back is fruit. You don't sow seed in order to get more seed. That would be so pointless. (laughs) Instead, you sow seed in order to get fruit, something that will sustain you, something that's better than the seed you sowed, sued, sown. You had sown. Mm, We'll go with that. So in the metaphor, money is the seed that is sown. And you don't get back money, you get back fruit. So what is the fruit? And Paul tells us in chapter 9 in that next verse, he says, It is written, they have freely scattered their gifts to the poor. Their righteousness endures forever. See, this is is taken from, from Psalm 112. And what it's talking about is that the fruit is God's righteousness. Now, a lot of times when we think of God's righteousness, we actually think of it like um, his moral rightness or his right action. But in the Hebrew word from, from the book of Psalms, it talks about so much more than that. And so if you just think that it's God's right action, you miss it. What it is, is God's right, right relationship. God's righteousness is his right relationship with all things. It's sort of If you think about all the broken relationships that we talked about last week, God's righteousness is the setting right of all of that brokenness. That the relationships between God and humans are restored. And the relationships between human and human are restored. And the relationships between human and all of creation is restored. That things are being set right again. That God's righteousness, the fruit, the harvest, is that things are made right. That peace has entered and shalom has come. And that the thing that Eden is reestablished and restored, that's the fruit. That's the harvest. It is love of seeing the fruit, love for the mission, love for the world that compelled the generosity of the Macedonians. They looked at their money as seed and said, yes, I want to see the fruit of right relationships restored throughout the entire world, throughout Jerusalem and the Mediterranean and all over the world. So yes, here I will change the way that I live. I will change my lifestyle in order to invest, to give to the kingdom 
of God here on earth. They believed that Jesus was king and there was a new way to be human with King Jesus. Now, unless you're compelled by the love for people and the mission, this type of lifestyle, alter it like life-altering generosity, that like doesn't really make any sense. <laughs> it's kind of like, why would anybody live that way? Why would anybody do that? There is no way for anyone in the world to sort of ever participate because there's too much uncertainty and there's too much unknown and there's too much fear, there's too much risk. After all, what happens if after you give in this life-altering way, there's not enough left over? Or what if after giving, there's nothing left over? And Paul sort of addresses this as well. He says uh, in, in chapter uh, 8, he says, Our desire is not that others might be relieved while you're hard-pressed, but that there might be equality. At the present time, your plenty will supply what they need, so that in return, their plenty will supply what you need. The goal is equality. As is written, the one who gathered did not have too much, and the one who gathered little did not have too little. Now, in that last part, Paul is actually quoting um, the book of Exodus, chapter 16. And if you remember back to that story, what's happening in the history of Israel is they're actually all in a big old desert. They're wandering around a huge group of people, and there is no way that they will hunt enough food. There is no way they will grow enough food. There is no way they will gather enough food on their own. They are going to die unless God provides. And that's exactly what God does. God actually does this thing where he provides manna. He like makes these little white flecks appear on the ground every morning with the dew that can then be collected and put together to make bread that sustains the entire nation of Israel. Now every day the Israelite people, they would go out from their tents and they would collect up these flakes, this manna flakes to feed themselves with bread. Now the tricky thing about this manna was that it only lasted for one day. If they collected a whole bunch, enough for the next day, they didn't eat it the first day, and they thought, oh, I'll eat this on the next day. There were no leftovers because all of that manna would rot. There'd be like maggots and worms all throughout the manna. You couldn't eat it, and so you'd have to go out the next day and collect a little more. There's only enough for one day. They had to trust that there would be enough for tomorrow just like there was enough food for today. They had to trust that God would provide enough for tomorrow, just like he provided enough for today. But what I've never noticed before is when looking at the way that Paul quotes from Exodus, it isn't saying that everyone gathered an equal amount from the very beginning. What it's saying is that the reality is, is that some people are going to gather more. They just have more ability to gather. They're younger and they can get down on the floor and gather all their stuff or whatever. And there are some people that are just not going to be able to gather as much. Maybe they're elderly or they're sick and they have gathered less. But regardless of how much they gathered, there was always enough because they shared with whoever had need. They understand that they couldn't keep it anyways. It would rot. And they trusted that there was going to be enough for tomorrow. And so they shared, and, and Paul is sort of making a comparison between the manna that provided and the money that is given. He is saying that the same thing happens with money. It's okay to gather a lot. It's a really good thing. 
But if you're going to use it just for you, it's going to spoil. Because just because it came to you doesn't mean that it was meant for just you. Now the miracle of manna and the bread in the wilderness was for that moment in history. But in John 6, Jesus calls himself the bread of life. And he says, listen, whoever comes to me will never go hungry. And whoever believes will never be thirsty. See, the manna in the wilderness is really just pointing to something or someone who would be the ultimate manna for all people and for all time. It's pointing to Jesus, the bread of life. See, what Jesus did was he left heaven so that you and I might be provided for forever. And that's what Paul is saying in in, in chapter 8. He says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, for your sake he became poor, so that through his poverty you might become rich. See, when Jesus came to earth, he gave up the riches of heaven, the prerogative of a heavenly throne, the beauty of all creation coming together. He gave up that for the poverty of earth to sweat and toil and die and be tortured so that we might have everything that was his, the riches of heaven. Jesus gave up complete wholeness to experience the fullness of our brokenness so that we could have his wholeness. He gave up the hope of heaven to enter into the fullness of our despair so that we could have the hope of heaven. He gave up everything and held on to nothing so that we might have everything. See, ultimately, the Macedonians were able to be generous beyond anybody's expectation, not because of duty. See, no duty can compel you to do that. But Paul says the reason they exceeded all expectations of giving was because they gave themselves first of all to the Lord and then by the will of God also to us. They gave themselves first to God. They embraced Jesus, the bread of life. They trusted the provider of bread in the wilderness. They trusted the giver of the bread of life. They, uh, it, it, they, they embraced the creator of all fruit. And they trusted that Jesus was who he said he was. They trusted that he did what he said he was going to do and that he will continue to provide for those who are hungry and those who are thirsty. And part of the way he does that is through this body of believers. And this is really the invitation that I want to offer you. Perhaps for you, you have, you want to be generous. Like your eagerness that first came up when this first thing started was, yes, how can I help? But then as the time came, it sort of was like, okay, well, hold on. Maybe there was a lack of follow through. And and what I don't just want to encourage you in is like, hey, like now's the time, (laughs) step up. It's actually first draw close to God. Because it's only when we experience God as the bread of life, it's only when we recognize that he is the one we are trusting to give provision. It's only when we are trusting him as the giver of all gifts, the creator of all fruit, that we can sort of open our hands and say, who can I help? 
that we can do this thing that out of our poverty says, how can I be radically and extravagantly generous? And so my call, my invitation for you this morning is to first start with embracing Jesus as the bread of life, to come to him and embrace him as the one who gave up the glories and riches of heaven and stepped into poverty so that you might have all the riches of heaven. Let's pray together. Father God, you know where every single one of us is in this moment. You, you know the physical location that we are in, but you also know the locations of our heart. You know where we fall on that line of generous to greedy. You know where our heart is, and you know if our heart is crying out to trust you more. And so, Father God, I ask that you would meet each one of us in this moment, that you would draw us into you, that we would first and foremost experience a radical trust in you. That in the midst of our poverty, we would trust you. That you are the giver of all good things. That you are the bread of life that sustains. That we might be able to open our hands and give freely to those around us. We pray all these things in your holy and precious name. Amen. Amen. All right, guys, we're going to take a quick second um, to answer our, our Q&A. And, uh, and so we have our first question that's come in. Um, okay, I'll read it to you. So when you're talking about greedy versus generosity, it makes me realize that, my, that in my heart, I generally give to get something in return. Should I stop giving until that changes? How do I change that? It's a great question. And I think the first step is, um, is really to first come into God, to recognize him as the one that we trust, um, to establish that sort of relationship. But I don't think that that means that you stop giving. Um, a lot of times, so this is sort of my, I'm going to dive in quick to a like theory, um, but a lot of times we um, think that we will think ourselves into a new practice. Um, so we'll uh, think God is trustworthy, God is trustworthy, God is trustworthy, and then we'll start giving and that will be good. But actually, there's so much research and studies that say that that's actually completely backwards. We don't think ourselves into a new habit or action. We actually practice a habit into a new way of thinking. And so what I would say is, Continue to practice generosity. Continue to practice that as a habit, and you will actually begin to see, look, I, I was generous, and God provided. I was generous, and God provided, and it will begin to change your thinking about the trustworthiness of our Heavenly Father who provides richly for us. Um, another question is, um, contrast the difference between the personal responsibility to be giving to people compared to advocating for the governmental societal programs instead. Whew. Okay, let me read it one more time. Contrast the difference between personal responsibility giving people compared to advocating for governmental societal programs instead. Okay, I think that what this person is probably getting after is sort of the idea of like, uh, where are we responsible? Are we just responsible for taking care of each other? Or are we also responsible for advocating for governmental society programs? I'm assuming like SNAP, welfare, um, uh, stimulus checks, things like that. Um, so here's what I'm going to say. I cannot tell you from a biblical perspective that we should be supporting or not supporting governmental societal programs. Um, 
I have my personal opinions about what that looks like. But the reality is, is that we are all sinful. Like we are all human and we're sinful and we are, um, uh, we are generally um, susceptible to being greedy <laughs> uh, and, and we're corruptible. And that is true on a one-on-one individual level where I will not give even though I have the opportunity to give as an individual. I uh, will choose to hold back rather than share with my fellow brother or sister who is in need. I'm corruptible on an individual level. Uh, Governments are also corruptible on a governmental organizational level. And so they won't always do the right thing either. And so I think that there's just this reality that we need to recognize if we're comparing the two that both are corruptible and both are susceptible to people being greedy. What I'm going to say, like, okay, so there's these two lines. I'm going to say, hey, but God is calling us to something so much bigger than that. God is calling us to a generosity that surpasses the individual giving and surpasses our governmental giving and governmental programs. He's saying, listen, in some ways I think that sometimes God is saying, listen, um, there's lots of different ways to do this. What I'm calling you to is generosity. And so are you being generous? Are you being generous with the, the power and the position that you have in your voting and in your choice of a government and the way you engage with those governmental systems? Are you being generous with the individual resources that have come to you and the people that are around you? And so I think that that is what God is sort of calling us to. So I hope that that answers your question. I hope that that's what you're talking about. We have another question. This is the most questions we've ever had. Okay, how do you know, how do I know if I am helping or enabling with my generosity. Oh my gosh, this is a great question. Uh, Okay, so if you are interested in learning more about this, there is a phenomenal book that I encourage you to read. It's called Toxic Charity. Um, It's a really, really great book, and it's dealing with this whole idea of when we just like give people stuff um, because they ask for it, are we helping them or are we enabling them? So if somebody comes to us and says, hey, um, I really need you to pay my electric bill. <laughs> and uh, the questions we kind of have to ask are uh, really the questions behind the scenes of, okay, is it really that you need your electric bill paid or do you really need a job so that when next month comes, you actually can pay your electric bill. And so it's this difficult thing that honestly I run into a lot of trying to figure out what is the linchpin that is putting this person in a place of poverty and inability to sort of move forward with their life and have freedom from the bondage of debt or bills and things like that. And so we really have to take a deeper look of of asking ourselves the question, by helping this person Am I just putting them in this position, by doing what this person's asked, am I putting them in a position that sets them free so they can move forward and come out from the, the encumbermentness of this whole situation? Or next month, are they just going to be in the same situation again? Guys, that is a lot harder to deal with in terms of just, hey, when somebody asks you for something, you just give it to them. This is one of the reasons why we partner with Faith Connections. Um, Faith Connections is an area resource that kind of helps um, with rental assistance, utility assistance, emergency assistance for families in the Damascus and Clarksburg area. And when people call us and say, hey, can you help me with rent? I say, hey, listen, you need to go call Faith Connections. We give money to them, and then they sort of decide and, and look at 
a bigger picture and say, okay, who, how, who are we really helping and who are we enabling? It also sort of all the churches, many churches in the area sort of all partner with Faith Connections and they say, um, and they make sure that somebody isn't calling Cedarbrook and then calling Greenridge and then calling Clarksburg to just get one bill paid after another, after another, after another, after another, and we just don't know it because we're not talking. So if we're all sending them to Faith Connections and Faith Connections is keeping track of like, okay, this person keeps calling. There's a deeper issue than just I need my mortgage or my rent paid. There's an issue of financial responsibility and we need to mentor and tutor them in that. Um, there's an issue of, um, of the they need a job so that they actually are creating a source of income or they need other resources um, to sort of pull into that. I love talking about this topic. Um, and so if you would like to engage in this topic more, again, Toxic Charity is a great book to read. Um, and if you have any additional questions, I'd be happy to engage those two. I hope I answered that one fully too. Um, no more questions? No more questions. Great. Um, listen, if you are new here, if this is your first time, I would love to know who you are. I can't see your face because you're not actually in this room. Um, so I'd love to know who you are. There's two ways that you can get in touch with us. I'd love to hear a little bit about your story and share a little bit about mine and our church's story. Um, but there's two ways you can get in touch. One is to just email me and in the message it says new to Clarksburg. Um, you could also text the same number that we had before. Um, the church's number 24045. Five, four, five, three, five, three. Um, and we would love to get in touch with you that way and sort of set up a time that we can swap some stories. Uh, the other thing is I want to say thank you to those of you who are giving so generously to our community and our congregation in order to help us take care of the needs of others. If you would like to join with us and, and partner with us financially, there are really three ways that you can get involved, three ways to give. One is by giving online. The other is to text any amount to the number 484321, or you can send your checks via snail mail. Um, and so any of those would be great. The last thing I want to let you know is parents, we want to make sure that even though your kids are at home with you, that they, um, and they're not able to um, be here, we want to make sure that they're able to participate and continue to learn in their trust and their relationship with God. And so one of the ways that we did that is we, at, directly after this service, um, after this live stream or attach this live stream, it's going to be here. You don't have to go anywhere. We have our kids service ready. So you can gather together your preschoolers or your elementary schoolers into the room um, so that they can participate in their portion of the service. But the other thing we did is hopefully this week you received this in the mail. Um, this is actually a devotional for your kids to do or for you to do with your kids. Um, it is tied to the lesson that we're showing after the service. Our lessons coming up for the month of May are all about determination. This is a five-week devotional that you can engage with with your, your kiddos. Um, it's about determination. What a great way to help our kids know that they can decide that it's worth it to finish what they've started. I mean, how many kids give up halfway through unloading the dishwasher and say, it's not worth it? No, determination. How many of our kids feel like it's not worth it to finish the Zoom call? No, determination, right? This is something our kids need to know. But bigger than that, we want them to know that to be determined to follow God, to determined to trust God. So today in their story, Jesus gave his followers the task of telling the whole world about them, and they needed to be determined to do that. And so 
Um, there are a couple questions that you can talk to your kids about after the message is over, after the video is over. One thing is, what is one thing that you thought you'd never be able to do, but you worked through it and eventually got it? You can talk to them about that and then also ask them, what are some of the things that you think are impossible to do now? And what would it take in order to get yourself to a place where you later, eventually, if you were determined, could do them? All right, guys, that is it. Until next week, may you, out of the poverty that you carry within you, the death of Jesus, experience resurrection and extravagant generosity. Amen.